The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I want to do a couple of things. Uh, one is to try and um, uh, finish my presentation as uh, briefly as possible and give more time for your questions than carving out time from the common Q&A session. And Paul wanted me to make an announcement that you could write your questions for the panel for the afternoon and pin it uh, to the board here on my right. And I do want to thank Joe and Paul and the leadership of the RZIM Canada to have invited me to be here because I've been part of the RZIM in all the other offices, US, UK, Middle East, India. This is the first time I'm coming to minister along with the RZIM friends in Canada. And um, it's wonderful to meet many of you and uh, to see so many uh, Quebecois as well. Um, well, I don't know whether they are part of the evil assignment uh, given by Lucifer to them, but it's lovely that uh, they are with us. Now, I want to also... Uh, sorry? Um, I want to also... Um, thank Rick for choosing this particular hymn. Uh, it's not only a hymn which introduces the Trinity, but it was written by Reginald Heber, who was a bishop of Calcutta. In fact, when he died at the age of 42, he was bishop in our country uh, more than uh, maybe 150 years ago. So it's great to be here. Um, now let me begin by saying a few things in general, and I'll be generally following the notes in front of you. But I want to begin by stating the belief of who God is up front. And there was a question uh, to Joe at the previous session. Uh, is not our uh, reasoning somewhat circular? Now I want to make this very clear. When you come to thinking about God, you cannot have a non-circular argument. I'll tell you why. Because if you want to avoid circularity totally when arguing about God, you have a big problem on your hands. You want God to be the conclusion of a deductive argument. But that's impossible by definition. Because God is the universal. You cannot have an argument in which God can be the conclusion. It's almost like asking for a God's eye view of God. That only God has. Now I'll tell you an Indian story which you must have heard. You must know that Indians long before we came to be known for IT, we had been exporting gurus right across the world. In fact that was our greatest industry. Um, and one of these gurus, there are several of them actually, who always tell you a story of six blind men who went to see an elephant. Uh, it normally comes in response to an exclusive claim to Christ that a Christian presents to them. And the story, of course, is that we are all blind people. We touch six different parts of the elephant, and we all come away with six different impressions. Each seems to contradict the other, but actually there is one whole elephant out there. Now, that sounds very convincing, except for one fatal flaw. I normally ask these people, if all these six uh, blind people had a committee meeting, after they had felt different parts of the elephant, would they have been able to put the whole picture together? And the answer is no. 
The only one who knows that there is an elephant out there is the one who has sight. And by definition, even the one who tells you the story is blind. So what are we talking about? In fact, it shows us the prior need for revelation. And I think postmodernism as well as Eastern philosophy, these two quite differing approaches to reality, are actually telling us that when you begin to argue for God, it is better to start with who God is and then to demonstrate the explanatory power of this understanding of God. And that is what it's a course I'm going to take. You can call it presuppositional apologetics and probably kind of posit it as something against classical apologetics. Now, I do not want to get into that kind of an argument here. But I'm just saying that we are here talking about God as one who exists and who has revealed himself. Now, I have defined God here. You'll notice that it's a bit different from what those of you who are familiar with the writings of Schaeffer would have come across. I've said Christianity holds that God is an all-personal, all-relational being, existent in three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've substituted one word of Schaeffer's, which is infinite personal, is how he used to call God, but I've substituted by this all personal, all relational, for some very important reasons. I will not have uh, time to dwell upon that, but whenever you begin to define God in negative terms, like infinite, even absolute, unfortunately, is a negative word. It's unrestricted. Absolutus in Latin means unrestricted, free. Absolution of sins uh, is actually setting you free. It's a negative word. And immortal is used only once in the Bible for God. God is the living God. That is the positive definition. And so instead of saying infinite, which is defining the infinite versus the finite, which is quite ridiculous actually, God existed before the finite was created. Uh, so it is best to describe God as one who is all personal, all relational. By that, what I meant is really what Michael spoke to us last night about. He spoke about the relationship between God and humanity. We are going one step backward to say that God is a relational being within himself. And the second great doctrine of the Bible after the Trinity is humans being made in the image of God. Which is why we find meaning in our relating to God. Which is really, I think, uh, some of the questions I believe nowadays when I speak to a Muslim friend one-on-one, -on -one, I start with the Trinity. Because I believe that a Muslim is one who's desperately longing for a relationship, which his uh, religion denies him totally. The second thing I want to say as an introduction is that the Bible does not come to us with ideas. The Trinity is not a concept. Now, concepts are important. Now, I'm a civil engineer. That's my basic training. I worked for the Indian government for 28 years. I was born in a, a reasonably religious Anglican family in southern India. Came to Christ at the age of 19 uh, as a final year undergraduate student. And then I went on to do my master's degree, joined the Indian civil service, worked with the Indian government for 28 years, and then this is my 14th year with Ravi. So that's all my theological training, incidentally. Um, all my theology I learned by my witness to my Hindu friends. One of the things I learned uh, in the uh, counterfeit philosophies that flood our world today is that every counterfeit 
has to resemble the original at some point. And uh, whenever you come across a counterfeit, you should ask yourself this question, what is the original of which this is the counterfeit? You cannot have a $3 counterfeit Canadian dollar uh, note. It's because there is no original. And I think that way, uh, every lie of the devil can be used as an agent for learning truth. Uh, and that's something that we will do alongside. Now, I want to start with uh, the beginning of this doctrine. Now, the point is people say this is a complicated uh, doctrine. Let me say that it's not complicated. It's actually quite simple as you begin to reflect on it. But what we begin to see is that this doctrine did not come to us in terms of concepts and ideas. It comes to us as a story. And I think one of the important places where which you can link up to your postmodern friend uh, who, is, uh, who expresses his incredulity towards meta-narratives is that here is a story of God with which you can find empathy, you can find identification. And that's how we want to look at it. So this doctrine does not come to us in the first of these two ways which I have tried to show. I'm going to generally follow the notes that you have in front of you. It does not come by theological reflection. Now I want to maybe qualify, add to something that Michael said last night. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, you should be careful not to simply equate it to the Quran. There are some very important differences between the Old Testament and the Quran, apart from a lot of historic details. You'll find that in the, the Bible, in the Old Testament, God offers himself as father. God offers himself as husband of his people, Israel. But no individual Jew or Jewess had the courage to address Yahweh as father. In uh, Isaiah 63 and 64, uh, you have two verses which, call, which quote the nation of Israel calling God our Father. You are our Father. But it's only when the disciples in the New Testament approach Jesus and ask him to teach them to pray. He drops almost a bombshell saying when you pray you can say our Father. So what you have in the Old Testament is a different God from the totally transcendent unapproachable Allah of the Quran. You have a God who offers himself for a relationship. But the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly stated in the Old Testament. Although there is a latent plurality within the persons of the Godhead, which could be seen. We will be looking at uh, some of those scriptures later on. But by a pure theological reflection, you could have never come to the conclusion that God was Trinity. What about philosophy? I think um, uh, Joe did a, a great job. In fact, all great philosophical thinkers right around our world, uh, I have mentioned uh, two names here uh, in Western philosophy, Greek philosophy. Parmenides is the one who talked about absolute unity. And I think the present descendant of Parmenides is Deepak Chopra, a medical doctor from India who now practices New Age and talks about absolute unity of everything. You are who? You are nobody. You are just a wiggle, a worm, a quantum fluctuation in the universe. Very enlightening. <laughs> <coughs> but at the other end of the spectrum, you have atheists uh, who believe in diversity without any kind of a framework 
which would find unity. I think Stephen Hawking, uh, when he's trying to discover the theory of everything, is at the level of physics, he's trying to come up with a unifying framework. In Greek, among the Greeks, of course, Heraclitus was the philosopher of diversity. I think I remember Ravi saying uh, some time ago in a slightly different context. He said university is a very Unitarian term because it brings unity and diversity together because in studying the various branches of knowledge you're also studying it under a unifying framework of God's revelation. But today because universities have rejected God largely, they should be called multiversities because there is no uh, real uh, unifying framework. In fact in our graduate school we had a joke about a specialist. A specialist is one who knows more and more about less and less till he knows everything about nothing. Uh, so it's a kind of a, uh, a progression and a regression. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity, therefore, doesn't come to us either by theological reflection or by philosophical speculation, but by three historic encounters. And that's why I think we need to begin to read the Bible as a narrative. I think that's what is really needed in today's world if we are going to connect with uh, friends, many of our questions do not look for theoretical conceptual answers. No, concepts are important for us to integrate, to see that the total worldview hangs together. But in terms of particulars, even of our own struggles in our personal lives, or in communicating the gospel to others, we need to recognize that this is how God has spoken to us. Now, what are those encounters? Now, I put this as the foot of Mount Sinai, the first encounter, mainly because it was there that some two million people, men, women, and children, heard God speaking to them in an audible voice. And they said to Moses, let not God speak to us, we will die. You go up to the mountain, you hear God speak, and you come and tell us. If you were a Jew or Jewess, uh, if you are growing up in a Jewish home, uh, the one story you would have heard from your parents, your grandparents, was this amazing story. How God took you out of Egypt, took you through the Red Sea, and on the uh, plains of Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, he spoke in an audible voice. Now what is amazing about the Old Testament, I'm just making a passing reference without drawing any dogmatic conclusions. The Old Testament does present to us uh, pictures of God in visible form. I mean, you see the man with whom Jacob wrestles uh, at the banks of the Jabbok River. Or the captain of the Lord's host who uh, appears to Joshua. To whom Joshua has the audacity to ask on whose side are you? And he turns back and said, you better decide where you are. I have come as the captain of the Lord's host, and he worships him. Very difficult. But there they are, this amazing encounter with God in the Old Testament. The second encounter is on the dusty streets of Palestine and Jerusalem. We'll be looking at that uh, in some detail, and I'm going to be emphasizing two aspects of who Jesus was. I think we should be grateful to Dan Brown, because he did not go as far uh, as um, Elias Katsantakis a few decades ago when he wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. He does not claim that Jesus committed a sin. He only says Jesus was married 
In fact, uh, in Ben Witherington's reply to the Da Vinci Code, he says, if Jesus was married, so what? He had not committed any sin. But the direction in which the evidence takes us is that he was not married. And you know, the story is quite funny, actually. The, the Sir Lee Teabing and this uh, rather uh, gullible Sophie Nevoe, uh, uh, to whom he says, oh, he is... Uh, nothing but a mere mortal. I feel like crying hallelujah. It's only because he was mortal he could die. Now, you have to begin to see the humanity of Jesus alongside the divinity of Jesus. And thirdly, ten days after Jesus ascends to heaven in the upper room. Now, the question as we would come back to this as after we survey the uh, life of Jesus briefly is that these three encounters, are they three distinct persons? Are they three different gods? Or are they one person playing three roles? See, those are the two alternatives with which the church had to struggle. You see, all that you see, the formulations of uh, in fact, the Council of Nicaea uh, did not, as Dan Brown contends, meet to uh, sort of uh, impose the deity on Jesus. In fact, uh, that council actually was trying to articulate how the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, uh, of uh, the two natures, divinity and humanity, could come together in one person, Jesus Christ. And a few decades later, it is Athanasius um, who gives the final touches to the doctrine of the Trinity. But we are not going to go there. We are going to just stay with Scripture and then think as Jewish Christians, the first Christians of the Christian church, as we struggled with this amazing revelation. We must recognize that the uniplurality within the, uh, the being of God is first exposed by the arrival of Jesus Christ on the scene. In fact, uh, Jesus very often makes it clear in different ways. For example, you take Jesus, um, the question of Thomas to Jesus. We normally use in, in apologetic circles uh, to show that the truth of uh, Jesus is unique and exclusive and so on, and that's right. But actually, the answer points uh, to something beyond that. What is Thomas's question? Lord, we do not know where you are going, but how can we know the way? What is Jesus' answer? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can also say, I am the real or the true and living way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is actually saying that the destination is not a place, and the way is not a road. The destination is a person, and the way is a person. I am the way to the Father. In fact, it is such an important message today because we are living in a depersonalized, subpersonalized world. In fact, I would uh, define evangelism as the communication of the person of Christ by the person of the believer to the person of the seeker through the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. At any point, you lower the level of the gospel to something personal, some megabytes of information, you've already lost it. I think one of the dangers at the beginning of the 21st century is for us to digitalize the gospel. If that was enough, Jesus, God would have prepared a multimedia presentation. He wouldn't have sent Jesus into the world. I think we need to recognize that uh, in our world today, 
full of gadgets. We, Jesus taught us to love people and use things. We love things and use people. Now, I think it's very significant to recognize that the first Christians were Jews. Strict monotheists. I want you to, there's a typo here on the first uh, subparagraph under we conclude the following. The New Testament should not be New Testaments. You'll think that I am one of those liberals who've added all the Gnostic Gospels here. Uh, The New Testament, while affirming the full deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, does not sacrifice the oneness of God in any single passage. Um, I, it's good for us to recognize that. Uh, John does it uh, much more than uh, the others, but John does it from one particular angle. As the most intimate of Jesus' disciples, Peter and Paul emphasize the divinity, divinity of the second and third persons as well. Now, let us uh, all join together on a journey. Imagine for a moment that you were one of the first disciples of Jesus, man or woman, Uh, In one of our open forums in India, I was asked the question, why wasn't there any uh, women among the 12 disciples? Now, that's a very difficult question. But I did find a way around that question by saying that it was the women disciples of Jesus who really stayed with him at the time of his greatest need. All the he-men went away. And uh, there was only a teenager and a number of women who stayed with him who were the ones who first come to the tomb on the Sunday morning And I think if they were not disciples, I don't know who they were. Uh, You notice that if you were a Jew or a Jewess, there were certain things that you would have begun to notice as you walked with Jesus those three and a half years. You would have noticed that he was surely a man. See, out about his humanity, there would have been very little doubt. He was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry, he had to eat. Probably he shared with us some of the temptations that he had faced and won. But we would have been absolutely sure that he was a man. But we notice several things in addition. What were they? If you were there, and we were all packed into that house, you remember that uh, four friends of a paralytic opened the roof and lowered this man in front of Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven you. And of course, the Pharisees are incensed. But uh, even as a Jewish disciple, a follower of Jesus, you would have begun to ask questions. Who is this man who could forgive sins? Because you knew, as a reader of the Old Testament, that only God could forgive sins. And here is a human being, like you and me, who is telling this other human being, your sins are forgiven. In fact, there's a bit of a humor in that story. I don't know how many of you have... Uh, seen the humor in the Bible. You know, the last book on humor of Jesus was uh, by an evangelical was written in 1952. That's a shame. Elton Trueblood. More recent books uh, are there by Jesuit priests. You know, he says to the people who are beginning to question his authority to forgive sins, which is easier? Now, that's a question of apologetics. To say your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your bed and walk. Because one is verifiable, the other is not. And Jesus says, in order that you may know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. When we ask him to teach us to pray, what does he say? What did he say? What was the small introduction to that prayer? No, no, even before that. 
pray this way. This is how you should pray. He didn't say, let us pray. He excludes himself from that prayer. It's very important. Both in Matthew 6 and in Luke 11, Jesus excludes himself from praying that prayer because there was one sentence in that prayer that Jesus did not have to pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's very careful. That's one of the reasons why we need to read the Gospels carefully. In fact, last week I was with John Dixon. Uh, John may not be known very much here in North America, but I think uh, he's going to be at the Wheaton Summer School. He's a PhD in history and is a prolific writer and apologist of Australia, living in Sydney. He's recently completed a documentary on the Jesus controversies, had it filmed in the Holy Land, in Cairo, uh, in the Nag Hammadi Library, uh, in Oxford. And uh, John was saying, he used a very interesting word. He said, when we read the Gospels, we miss their sophistication. I like that. You know, there is a certain simplicity as well as a certain sophistication about the Gospels. It is very plainly written. You know, as a young believer, I, uh, well, I did not consider the Gospels too seriously. In fact, John, I found particularly repetitive, too elementary. I liked Paul, stretched your mind. But um, I've revised my opinion, obviously, since. Uh, and I begin to see the amazing books the Gospels are. And that's exactly where the story is. That's the storyline of the revelation of the Trinity. You begin to see Jesus forgiving the sins of others, not having any sins of his own in need of forgiveness. How does he address God? He addresses God as Father. Now, one of the um, arguments of Jehovah's Witnesses is that if Yahweh is Father and Jesus is Son, Yahweh is fully God, Almighty God. Jesus is a kind of mighty God, a kind of a demigod, somewhere halfway between. Now that is, um, you know, these Jehovah's Witnesses, sometimes I tell these guys, uh, let's ask the original Jehovah's Witnesses. Who are they? The Jews. They are the original Jehovah's Witnesses. What did they think about Jesus calling Yahweh as Father? John 5:19. When Jesus says, "Why do you want to stone me?" He says, they say to him, "You call God your Father, making yourself equal with God." No doubt about that. Jesus was claiming full divinity for himself. There are a number of other things. For example. Uh, when you read the miracles of Jesus, we must recognize that there were many miracles which Jesus authorizes his disciples to perform. But there were some miracles which he performs to exhibit his divinity. For example, when we wake him up in the middle of the night on the Sea of Galilee, he does not say, let's pray or let me ask my father. He just talks to nature. Shh, keep quiet. And if you are a true-blooded Jew, you would know this is the creator speaking to his creation. He rises from the dead in a different way from which he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, it's important for us to look at two bits of evidence uh, around Jesus' resurrection. You know, before Jesus called Lazarus back to life, he had to have the stone, uh, the mouth of the tomb moved away. And after 
Lazarus comes out, I'm sure he was bound from top to toe. He had to come, I don't know how he was walking. And he had to be uh, let loose. Whereas when you see Jesus' resurrection, and it's not quite right to call Jesus' tomb an empty tomb. If it was totally empty, uh, there would have been reasons for us to doubt the resurrection of Jesus. The clothes were still there. The stone is rolled away in Matthew 28 by the angel, but you do not see Jesus walking out. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. That's what the disciples, uh, that's what the angel tells the women. You go in and see him where he lay. John chapter 20, when Peter and John come to the temp, uh, come to the tomb, they go inside and John records his own response in verse 8. He saw the clothes and he believed. You know, there are two words of the Greek language which are not translated properly. Let's uh, turn to John 20. I'll just read those um, words to you. It's Peter who runs in first. He looks at the clothes lying there. Verse 5, Peter reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. Kaimai uh, actually means lying undisturbed. And then he sees the burial cloth. Verse 7, that had been around Jesus said the cloth was folded up. No, it was rolled up on a raised stone on which his head was resting. The, uh, the uh, cloth around his head still retained its shape, but the head was not there. So Jesus' resurrection body could go through the clothes, go through the stone, come through the closed doors of the upper room, and appear to uh, the disciples. It belonged to a different dimension. Lazarus comes back to this life. That's why when at one point when the Jews were demanding a sign from Jesus, he said no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And he was referring to his own resurrection because that is the only miracle of Jesus which violated the second law of thermodynamics because it introduces a new dimension. It inaugurates a new creation. So that is the person that we are talking about. In fact, when Jesus rises, uh, ascends to heaven, uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 9, I don't think I have, have I given it there? Probably. Yes. When he ascends to heaven, he does not disappear in three dimensions. He, you know, like a plane disappears. You see, a plane disappears when it takes off because um, it's uh, too small and the light reflected by the plane is too faint for your retinas to register. Jesus doesn't disappear like that. A cloud receives him. And when he comes back, he comes back in clouds. Uh, this kind of clouds we have to investigate. They do not belong to the area of meteorology. Um, this is probably a pictorial way of describing that Jesus moves to a different dimension from where he would come back. This is amazing. Who is this man with whom we have been living? And ten days after he ascends to heaven, we have this amazing encounter. And let me read that paragraph on page two of your notes. Ten days after the ascension of Jesus, another person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who fully represents Jesus Christ. Whatever conclusion you reach about Jesus, 
you have to reach about the Holy Spirit, except that the Holy Spirit is not a physical being, he's not human in that sense, but he's as divine as Jesus was. He confronts the disciples as they wait in the upper room according to the command of Jesus. As promised by Jesus, this mysterious person of the Holy Spirit who was with them will now come to live in them. And let me read that section for you. John 14, 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. He lives with you and will be in you. Till the day of Pentecost, the work of the Holy Spirit was extra-personal. The Holy Spirit is mentioned from the very second uh, verse of the Bible. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon people. He leaves people. David would even pray in Psalm 51, Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. You do not see the New Testament Christians praying that prayer. The Holy Spirit has now come to live intrapersonally. It is God at his most empirical. As um, I think one of Ravi's audio CDs um, is entitled that and so you begin to see that in this amazing encounter of God the Holy Spirit you begin to encounter a third person now let me quickly run through this I'm going to uh, take less time this is um, when, to evaluate Jesus a, as an Indian Christian I find that one of the problems we have in India is that uh, Jesus is respected as a teacher which is rather ridiculous. C.S. Lewis says, uh, Jesus doesn't give us that option to be called a great moral teacher. He's either what he claimed to be or he is a liar. Of course, he can be a madman who uh, considers himself a uh, poached egg or something. I think what we need to uh, dwell upon, in fact, I think um, as you begin to get more and more specialized in apologetics, you are drawn to the Gospels. And you begin to see, and in India we have this amazing uh, possibility that God, the Gospels, the four Gospels are all printed and available for you to buy uh, separately. So you, we buy them, we give it to our friends uh, with whom we share uh, Christ, and we say, just read the story. Link up with the story. He's historical. His message is existentially relevant. He ministers to the felt needs. I think uh, Joe was mentioning that in reply to one of your questions in the previous session. But fundamentally he addresses the problem of human sin and rebellion. Now, you know, people raise the question, why didn't Jesus come around saying, hello, I am God? You don't see that happening. If only there was one verse where Jesus said, I am God, uh, that would have kind of clinched the issue. At least that's what we think. But that's really not how the Bible looks at it. Because Jesus comes within a particular context in which he comes as the Jewish Messiah. Yesterday Michael put it so beautifully that they were just within three feet of the Messiah and they didn't recognize him. And that's the tragedy of the, of the Gospels. Because the Messiah is clearly indicated to be both divine and human. 
The Gospels do record others calling him the Son of God, the demons calling him the Son of God, but Jesus preferred to call himself the Son of Man, which also had tremendous theological implications. Daniel 7 verse 13, Son of Man is one to whom eternal power is given by the Ancient of Days. Jesus himself quotes Psalm 110 verse 1, whose son is the Messiah, David's son, then why does he call him Lord? Because in Eastern cultures, an ancestor does not call a descendant as Lord. It's not done. They do not know how to ask. Because within their theology of God, this amazing understanding of God who has become man could never be understood. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, it's addressed to God, is forever and ever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Therefore, God, your God, God's God. How do you explain that? You know, one of the things for which we Christians should be so grateful to the Jewish scribes who copied the Old Testament faithfully, that when they came across these passages which could not quite accommodate their theology of a unipersonal God, they still copied them faithfully for us. And that's an amazing thing. Now, what are the two questions? Are they three separate gods? Or are they one person in three different roles? Now, why did the church reject the first option? Very, very simple to answer this. If there were three different gods, they could not have been infinite. They would have been three finite gods, limited in their power and authority, and their belief of the Old Testament would degenerate into a polytheism which was so clearly condemned in the Old Testament. Why does the church reject the second option? Because the disciples hear Jesus praying to the Father, and they hear the Father speaking to Jesus, and they hear Jesus referring to the Holy Spirit as another person, another comforter, who would represent him to the disciples. So what is the only option? See, this is really the heart of the doctrine of the Trinity. And you now begin to see, I hope, as I have begun to see, and lights have come popping on in my mind, that this doctrine of the Trinity, first of all, is definitely not man-made. If we were to make a designer God, it's not a Trinitarian God you would have thought of. But this is a God who has encountered his people in history in this amazing way. Let's look at the second option. You know, this uh, modalism, you know the reason why you should never use analogies like um, steam, water, and ice is because uh, they are almost like the second option. It is one person playing three roles. Now, I am husband to my wife, father to my two children, grandfather to my four grandchildren. One person playing three roles. Is that what Trinity is? No. Very, very different from that. There are three persons who, in some mysterious way, constitute one God. Now that's what we are going to look at in the next uh, couple of minutes. Now I want you to follow this carefully because this is exactly where the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, which com comes straight from scripture. This is not uh, what we are going to see in the next few minutes, is not what the church decided to do after the canon was completed. We are going to take this straight from 
the Bible itself, the New Testament. The church recognizes God as one being existent in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity does not mean that God is one in one sense and three in the same sense. There was a question in the previous session. Is God being rational? Of course he's being rational. He would have been illogical if we had said God is one person and three persons. That would be a violation of the law of non-contradiction. It would have meant nothing. God cannot be one in one sense and three in the same sense. He is one in one sense and three in another sense. What is the other sense? Specifically, God was one in substance and three in persons. Colloquially, one what and three whose. Let's look at those verses. John 10 verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now the English word one does not give you any idea of the gender. But in my language, which is Tamil, you immediately see that John does not use the masculine gender, but he uses the neuter gender. One is a neuter. And Jesus is quoted as using the same by John. In John 17, Verse 21, that all of them may be one. Now here Jesus is praying for us, the church. We are one. In what sense? We are different persons. We are some 50 persons here, but we are one in another sense. That's exact. That's the best analogy. The church becomes the best analogy of the Trinity. Because in, in our unity as the body of Christ, we are one, one in essence, but distinct in persons. That's what God is. Three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. But one divine essence. Always uh, denoted by the neuter gender by John. One what and three whose. Particularly when the masculine gender he applies to the Holy Spirit. That's what is, you see in John 16. I want you to notice that John deliberately commits a grammatical error in order to emphasize the personality of the Holy Spirit. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, you know the word spirit, tonuma in the Greek, is neuter gender. It's like saying, when he, uh, this laptop works, you'll be able to see the slides. You'll send me to English language school. But that's the exact kind of a grammatical error. He uses a masculine pronoun along with a neuter noun. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will lead you into all truth. Ekenos to Tonyuma to Hagi. It's important for us to recognize that the Holy Spirit is a person. Of course, we must be careful, you know, even in this lovely song of Hebrews which we sang, God in three persons. We must recognize that when we use the word persons, three persons, one essence, one substance. You know, in the Nicene Creed, the second paragraph about Jesus, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. God from God, light from light. Very God of uh, very God, begotten before all worlds, of one substance with the Father. 
You know, the word, neuter words, uh, which were used by the church historically, substance, essence, and so on, should not be used univocally in the sense that, the same sense I would say wood is a substance. When I talk about the divine substance of the Trinity, I'm not using it in the same sense as I would use it for a material substance. In the same way, and I'm very careful to emphasize this, when we use the word persons for Father, Son, and Spirit, we are not using it in exactly the same way as we use it for ourselves as human persons because of one important reason. If we are 50 persons in this room, we are 50 human beings. But the three persons of the Godhead do not constitute three divine beings. You see the problem? Which is why we are using language here not equivocally, which means no, all confusion, not univocally, which means big theological errors, but analogically. Uh, so that, and I want to tell you that we have authorization to do this because we are made in the image of God. Only humans can talk like this. Even angels cannot. See, this session that we are doing today on the Trinity is a special privilege of human beings made in the image of God. Because we begin to see something of the reflection of who God is. The unity of the Trinity does not mean aloneness, nor the distinction between the, within the Trinity mean dividedness. God can be love within his own being. Now, I do not know how much time we have. I want to start on something about ontology here, um, and then leave the rest for tomorrow's morning session and give you time for questions. Uh, but uh, I want you to look at these uh, last lines here. God can be love within his own being only because of the subject-object relationship. What is the first verse that comes to your mind as a Christian when you want to talk about the love of God? It should be John 3.16, and rightly. But there's a philosophical problem with John 3.16 because the one who loves is God, the subject is God, but the object of his love is creation. So the question can legitimately arise, could God be love before he created any object? You know, we have two children, as I told you. Our first one is a daughter who, with her husband, David, uh, lives in Bangladesh, and they have two children. She speaks very well. If she was able to speak within the first few moments after she was born, she would have given us a long lecture, and it would have probably run like this. You should be happy that I am born, because before I was born, you had nothing to love. But because I am born, I have become the object of your love, and so I am helping you to love me. So I am your teacher, you are my students, and we'll have to say amen to that. <laughs> you see the problem? In fact, we have confronted some Muslim friends with this. In fact, one Muslim guy in Malaysia, Shah Kirit, uh, confided to one of my friends, Kam Wang, uh, that Allah has the potential to love. Now that's a dangerous statement. If Allah has a hidden potential which he has not actualized, this Allah needs to grow up. <laughs> not so the God of the Bible. The fully actualized I am of the Old Testament. Because the Father loved the Son before the creation of the world. So behind John 3.16 stands an even greater verse, John 17.24. You loved me before the creation of the world. 
the same would apply to divine knowledge and divine freedom, which is what we are going to be doing um, for a few minutes today and for the whole of the session tomorrow. So I'm going to introduce three words, make it as difficult as possible, and then give you very simple alternatives in Greek, in, in green, uh, not in Greek, sorry. Ontology, you see, I want to tell you now what we are doing here. Let me tell you uh, the process we are adopting here. Um, this is reason reflecting on revelation. We are following on the lines of Augustine. We are actually saying that reason alone cannot bring you to God. But because God created you in his image, and because he has revealed himself to you, now you can allow your reason to reflect on his revelation. In fact, the whole apologetic uh, layout here is based on that assumption, which is perfectly justified. You do not have to apologize for it. That now that God has revealed himself in this amazing way, let us begin to see the implications of who this God is for our being, for our existence, ontology, for our axiology. You see, axios is worth. You know, the, the hymn in um, Revelation 5, axios, worthy, O Lord. Worthy, O Lamb, art thou. It's axios. No. Uh, axiology is a branch of philosophy which deals with two main subjects and uh, several other smaller subjects. The two main subjects are ethics and aesthetics. Beauty and morality uh, are actually part of axiology. And my argument here is if God were not Trinity, God cannot be holy. That is the argument I'm going to uh, use, which is why the word holy is uh, quoted only thrice in the Bible, one in Isaiah 6, the other is in Revelation 4, always uh, repeated thrice, holy, 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 uh, that holiness is a relational term, it is not a standalone term. And thirdly, epistemology, knowledge. When, it, when we say God is all-knowing, we don't realize that we are creating a problem for ourselves. Because when I say, I know this laptop, suppose I'm seeing this laptop for the first time, as a result of this knowing, the object will not change. But I, the subject, will change. So when we say God is all-knowing, we are talking about God as the supreme subject. And the question should arise in our minds, how can God be all-knowing and still unchanging? Unless, within the being of God, a subject and an object exist eternally. One knowing the other and vice versa. In fact, my big complaint about some of our apologists is that we have put philosophy above theology. We have let philosophy dictate the agenda to theology and not the other way around. Whereas I would say theology should dictate its agenda to philosophy. And then you can begin to reflect and see how the doctrine of the Trinity has tremendous explanatory power which no other view of God comes anywhere near to when it comes to explaining reality. Now, I'm going to just uh, deal with uh, three ontological criteria, So, one of which I think um, um, Joe mentioned. Uh, you will see that on page three of your notes, and uh, we can go through this very quickly. 
Um, you know, creation has tremendously diverse components acting in perfect harmony. What we have now come to call the ecological cycle, the creator must exhibit the same unity in diversity. You must remember Genesis 1 itself is a great starting point because God creates, first of all, the environment and then he creates uh, the world. Secondly, and this is important for you to recognize, it's only a Trinitarian understanding of God that can bring together transcendence and immanence. Are you familiar with these two words? Transcendence is where God is distinct from his creation. Immanence is God is active in creation. So as creatures, we use the word transcendence and immanence in this way. But I want to, you to notice that there can be no real distinction between God and his creation if there had been no distinction within the being of God. Think about it. Sleep over it tonight. And we'll discuss it tomorrow. If there was no distinction within the Godhead, Father distinct from the Son, God could not have created something which is distinct from himself. That is the problem with all New Age philosophies. That's why New Age philosophy would always insist that creation is an extension of the creator. You and the divine are one. Yoga, all the Eastern uh, philosophies and practices assume that there can be no ultimate distinction. But it's in a Trinitarian God you have distinction. But this transcendent God is also one within his own being. The Father is in the Son, and the Son in the Father. Read John 17. And that is why this God, while being transcendent, without sacrificing his transcendence, can be imminent in his creation. Allah can never be imminent in creation. He will forever be transcendent. But the Brahman of Indian philosophy will only be imminent. He can never be transcendent. It is the Trinitarian God of the Bible who is both transcendent and imminent. And do you know why this is important for us Christians? For a very practical reason. Worship is possible only if God is transcendent and therefore worthy of worship. Worship is possible only when God is imminent and approachable. Our Father in heaven. Okay, your questions. Yes. Sorry, just on that last transcendence and, and uh, imminence, you're saying that uh, unless there was a distinction in the Godhead, there could not have been a distinction in creation. That's, I heard that right. Uh, what I was actually saying, there should not be a distinction, that would not be a dist real distinction between God and his creation. Okay, so then when I create something, why is there a distinction? Uh, you mean as a human being? Oh, yeah. Well, from me, so how come God's creation uh, could not be distinct from me? Wait a minute. Now, the very fact that you can make something distinct from you is only because you reflect the image of God and within the being of it. We are talking here about the philosophical basis for the existence of separate things, separate entities. If there was no distinction within the being of God, father and son distinct from each other through the spirit, we'll do with uh, that more uh, tomorrow, uh, that real distinction is what transfers as God's distinction from his creation. And now God, because he made us in his image, we can make a product 
which is distinct from ourselves. In fact, if you make a sculpture, you will be both transcendent as well as immanent because, uh, first of all, it's distinct from you. It sh should not be confused with you. But your style, uh, your, the message that you want to communicate is there in the sculpture. So you are immanent in your sculpture. So this amazing combination is possible only because God is trinity. Think about it. Let's come back to this uh, question uh, maybe tomorrow. Because this is something that we don't normally think about. But if you have had extensive discussions with New Age guys, New Ages will say that creation is simply an extension of the creator. In other words, creation and create, um, creator are one. That means you are divine and so on. The ch chair and table are divine as well. What they are actually uh, struggling with is a philosophical problem. That if ultimate reality is one, say God, and there is no distinction, how can there be a real distinction between God and anything else? All distinctions will have to be illusory. So it would just be a part of the Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes? Very good, yeah. Uh, in, in, in fact, it's taken actually from the Athanasian Creed. The begottenness of the Son is not to be confused with creation, nor is it to be confused uh, and understood as an act in time. Uh, so Athanasius actually put it this way. He talked about the Son being eternally generated by the Father and the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Of course, on that, Eastern and Western churches had a disagreement whether the Holy Spirit proceeded only from the Father or from the Father and the Son. But what I want to do, taking up on what you said, it is actually a dynamic relationship that exists within the Godhead. Right? That means our God is a living God. He is not a dead idea. And that livingness of God is demonstrated by this dynamic relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an interesting apologetic ap application. You know, when the evolutionist says, survival of the fittest, do you realize that he is making an important value judgment? What is the value judgment? That living is better than dying. Who told you that? I al always ask the question, how would you assume that? You can make that assumption only if the norm is living and the aberration, the privation, as Augustine would say, is dying. But I have a reason why the norm is living, because my God is a living God, not in an abstract sense, but in a dynamic sense, where the Son is eternally generated by the Father, and the, proceed eternal, uh, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. What is it? I don't know. But what I know, that this is life. I mean, the greatness of the Christian church is that in union with Christ, we will forever be exploring the mystery of what we are talking about here. Yes. You are absolutely right. In fact, uh, one of the things, we'll do it again tomorrow, but briefly, freedom is a relational quality. Freedom is a relational quality. Uh, imagine a space traveler, 36,000 kilometers above the earth, zero gravity. Is that person free? Or are you and I free because we are related to the earth by gravity and friction? I mean, you are free to speak only because you are related to the language by its rules of grammar. 
Freedom is a relational quality. You know, our individualistic generation has defined freedom as standalone. And what you said is absolutely right. Freedom is a relational quality. I am free only because of you. I'm free to speak here because you called me to speak. Look at the words by which the Trinity, persons of the Trinity are described. Father and son, household terms. How does the father derive his fatherhood? Because of the son. And the son is free to be the son because of the father. Beautiful, isn't it? What is your name, your identity, your family name? You know, people in the East, you put your family name first. And then your name. So you find everything is relational. So you begin to see. We'll see more of this tomorrow. I think I better close now. One more question, yeah. Mm. Absolutely, he has no explanation for evil. Um, Indian pantheists, for example, will say evil is also an illusion. And if you ask them where the illusion came from, it's a good question. If God is one, if Brahman is one, where did illusion come from? And they would go to the extent of saying that even the illusion proceeds from Brahman. Now that doesn't explain anything. It simply explains it away. So that is, you see, you need to have a real distinction before you even see the real distinction between good and evil, please. So the doctrine of the Trinity becomes indirectly responsible for emphasizing moral judgments between good and evil. If there was no distinction within God, there will be actually no distinction even between good and evil. Although evil's existence is a negative existence, it's an, uh, an existence by aberration, an absence. But even that existence would not be possible. That's why, you know, in Christian apologetic circles when we say God is the ultimate frame of reference and we think that explains morality, I, I don't buy that. Whereas, uh, as you'll see tomorrow, when you see morality as love and hatred and evil as that which violates that relationship, which begins in the Garden of Eden for us humans, Whereas the pantheist has absolutely no explanation for evil. He will have to credit evil also to that all-absorbing oneness of whatever. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.